0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The famous saying attributed to Metternich, when China sneezes, the world catches a cold, was meant as an economic analogy. It has been given a new and darkly literal meaning in the last three years. One of the great difficulties for the world, however, is that it is really difficult to assess the extent of China's cold both in terms of the pandemic and in the sense of its economic recovery, because the flow of information is tightly controlled by the ruling Communist Party. My guest today is Doomsday Watch and Bunker, regular Cindy Yu. She's The Spectator's assistant editor and host of the acclaimed podcast Chinese Whispers. She's here to help us untangle fact from propaganda. Welcome to The Bunker, Cindy.
1: Thanks for having me again, Alex.
0: Let's start with the COVID situation. A, a figure of 37 deaths was put out um, a few weeks ago. And after being, frankly, ridiculed globally, it was revised to 60,000. How reliable are the figures? Do we have other ways of gleaning what is actually going on within China? <laughs>
1: um, there are more ways than you might think of gleaning what's going on in China, although it's far from transparent. Um, The 60,000 figure is certainly an underestimate. The real number is something more like 600,000, according to the data analysis firm Airfinity, uh, which has basically been looking at how many uh, people have been infected in a kind of modelling and then looking at the kind of case fatality rate within that. And the Chinese themselves, a state epidemiologist just this week, said that 80% of the population have had COVID now. So, you know, you can work at, work out backwards from that. But the reason I say there are more, more ways to find out than you might think is because actually for people like me and other journalists or people with family in China, you can see on the ground, I mean, it's a huge country, but still, nevertheless, you can see on the ground what's happening. So from as early as mid-December, it was clear to me that the numbers were not going to be accurate at all. We always doubt official numbers from China, of course, but this Mm. was something completely different in December. You know, this wasn't like the early 2020, how many cases are there? This was everyone around you, you know, they were getting infected, but you know that they didn't report their positive cases to anyone because there was nowhere to get home testing. So literally Mm. the (laughs) testing mechanism broke down. So it occurred to me, well, how could they possibly keep an eye on the numbers if they literally don't ask people who are positive to report their positive cases?
0: Reminiscent of what was going on in in the UK in March and April of 2020, when they just stopped testing in the community and we had no idea what was going on out there.
1: Right. But mind bogglingly, China has one of the most advanced testing regimes ever. They just dismantled it and didn't use it.
0: So it was a choice. It was a political choice to do that.
1: It was getting very expensive where other countries put money in furlough. For example, uh, in China, a lot of the money was put into the zero COVID regime itself into maintaining that kind mm. of daily testing into the kind of PCR t- daily testing as well uh, and into the quarantine centers. So I think they just decided by about end of November, early December last year, the COVID cases were getting to such an extent that it wasn't, it, it wasn't feasible to keep that up anymore. Um, so I think that's why they stopped testing.
0: And then restrictions were sort of further lifted because they had been lifted, but there were some restrictions in sort of long distance travel and things like that. And those were lifted for Chinese New Year. Um, Happy Chinese New Year, by the way. Thank Um,
1: you.
0: (laughs) We know from our own experience that that sort of multi-generational family contact can cause a, a sort of fresh spike. Are we seeing any signs of this?
1: Well, I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the lack of testing, it's very hard to keep a handle on that in real time. What the government is already concerned about is the fact that COVID has been spreading through cities in the last couple of months. But this is the moment where it's going to go into the countryside. As you say, those elderly people who often live in ancestral homes rather than moving with their younger generations into the cities to work, you know, they will now be impacted as well as just people who generally never left the countryside. Mm -hmm. The only good thing about any of this is that the countryside is a bit more sparsely populated. If indeed the urban centres have been infected and that's 80% of the population, you know, China is on its way out of this wave glo- uh, nationally just simply because of the speed with which they opened up.
0: Mm, yes, of course, when you have that huge a pool of infection, mutations become more likely. That really doesn't bear thinking about the idea of a, a, of a possibly new strain. Having decided that the zero COVID policy was no longer a goer, has the Chinese Communist Party now uh, refocused its efforts on the vaccination programme?
1: I think that when the opening up happened. It happened so quickly <laughs> that really very few people working in the public health sphere in China expected it to. There was no uh, mention of, oh, we're going to open up in two weeks time. And during the before then, we're, we're going to ramp up vaccinations. Not at all, actually, which is part of the whole mystery of, of the speed of opening up. Then by the time that it was opening up, it was happening in December, you know, the wave was happening so fast that to talk about vaccination almost seemed a bit, you know, the horse has bolted by that point. We're talking about natural <laughs> immunity now for pretty much everyone who survived. Nevertheless, vaccination has been going up. I think we're looking at about 40% of over 80s are fully jabbed and boosted now, which is um, an increase from April last year. But as hmm. I say, you know, if we're looking at 80% of the population infected, China's, <laughs> China's doesn't need vaccines anymore because it's got herd immunity.
0: Yes. I mean, I guess people can be reinfected and, you know, having having it lightly the first time doesn't guarantee you'll have it lightly. So the vaccination helps really the, the illness, if you get reinfected, be less severe, uh, which is why I thought they might want to do it. I mean, is it terribly cynical to think that there might be a school of thought within China's leadership that thinks, "Mm, so if a few hundred thousand elderly or vulnerable people die, that may not be a terrible thing for us.
1: It does have a big demographic problem. Recently, we heard that China's population formally uh, declined for the first time since the end of the Great Famine. So we're looking at a really quickly declining and aging population. I'm not sure that they will think that this is a way to solve or goes some way to solve that, because I think if they did, they would have... You turned on zero COVID earlier, uh, Mm -hmm. rather than really being forced into it after three years of very painstaking lockdowns and the rest of the world coming out and looking at China as the sore thumb sticking out. But I think that they also have a certain notion of the country, which is probably grander and bigger than on a scale than we think. You know, when we talk about China of 1.4 billion people, even if it's the 1 million dead, that's a drop in the ocean for the Chinese population. So I I think Chinese leaders operate on a scale that um, perhaps for Brits is hard to comprehend.
0: Western societies tend to cope with such population bumps by importing foreign labour. China is too big and too closed for that. What can it do?
1: Well, that's the kind of million dollar question, really. There are lots of good things that it could do, but the government is not going to do them. As you say, immigration is one way in which western countries have solved our own aging population problem but china for various societal and racial ish, uh, reasons wouldn't be open to that kind of diversity uh, you just look at how african students uh, are often being ostracized in the southern coasts of china when they go for university there what it has done so far is increase the one-child policy to two-child, to three-child. But that's really not the fundamental problem that young people are finding when they want to have children. It's a cost-of-living crisis for young people. You know, they, they can't get onto the housing ladder uh, without parental help uh, because of the housing market bubble, which is, you know, the party is trying to solve that, but not it's not managing to do it fast enough. Um, there is a real problem of uh, schooling where middle classes have ever higher expectations for what their children should be able to study and, you know, there's a whole tiger parent resources question there, and which deters potential parents as well. But fundamentally, if you talk to demographers, no developed country has managed to overturn this trajectory of an uh, ageing population, what countries can do is really just to adapt their countries for an ageing population. So for example, increasing the retirement age, reforming the healthcare system so that when you have more older people, they're not such a drain on the coffers, increasing productivity so that your economy can keep up and also just making things easier for older people to, to live in. I mean, I think, I think what we're looking at though is an inevitable decline. And 20 years ago, we were talking about the Asian century or the Chinese century. But I don't think China will overtake the US GDP now at this rate.
0: Yes, it does look like that. Related to this, uh, in a recent interview, I I was chatting to George Magnus, who was talking to me about China's rising debt burden. And, And this might be a strange thing for Westerners to hear, since China is also one of the largest state players in terms of lending. How did it get into trouble over its own debt?
1: Well, George will be the (laughs) the foremost expert on that one. But in my understanding, uh, a lot of it comes from uh, the infrastructure-led growth that China has opted for over, well, really since reform and opening, since the end of the Mao era, which is just to build a lot of roads, produce a lot of steel, build a lot of houses. And all of that is taken on by borrowing. And the borrowing has so far managed to keep up because uh, the economy has been booming. You know, China has been growing at about 10% in living memory until recent history. During that time, um, George once said to me, actually, that it was called a pro-cyclical effect, that there's no problem with that because you don't run into problems with your debtors when when the money is still keeping in. But the question is, does the economic slowdown trigger a kind of a run on your debts? And and I think it could.
0: Is domestic trouble of this kind with the pandemic, with the economy, uh, likely to affect uh, Xi Jinping's foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis Ukraine, Taiwan. Uh, Help me out here, because I have read some what seems to me credible analysis that it makes a more aggressive stance less likely, because China basically wants demand for its goods to recover and other analysis saying it makes it more likely because Xi will want to appeal to nationalism. What, what do you think?
1: I think he would use nationalism as a last resort if he needed that kind of boost in his popularity. And right now is certainly a dip in his popularity, probably the lowest point since he became a leader of China. At the same time, I'm not picking up in public opinion to uh, to the extent that I can, you know, uh, put my finger to the wind at all about 1.4 billion people. But on social media or, or in my conversations with people I know in China, I'm not picking up that they're blaming the government uh, as, as their foremost goal. You know, this reckoning that the government has put them through zero COVID over the last few years It's not on front and center of people's minds because they're so looking forward to the opening up, or they're so concerned about their family members who are ill or dying right now that, you know, China is still in this transition phase. Things the dust hasn't settled yet, as it were. If there comes to be a moment, a repeat of last November, for example, where people's public opinion turns against the government and really lays the finger of blame at the government, for for where China is now, then I can imagine Xi Jinping would use nationalism as a saving grace. And so I think when it comes to things like Taiwan, um, or its relationship with Russia, China is going to want to do the stable thing for now, for, at least for this year, you know, to recover its economy, to resume those cross-strait, uh, tourism trades and investments, uh, with Taiwan to keep having cheap Russian gas to use. And so not rock the boat on anything foreign policy-wise yet. I mean, all of this, though, of course, we're divining in the mind of one single man. So that obviously makes them much more unreliable. <laughs> yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. And then there was a sort of mini wave of uh, economic projections last week. I saw at least three pieces of it. One, I think, was from Citigroup. There was another one from the OECD saying that the economic recovery in China might be better than expected, might recover faster and better than anticipated. What is this optimism based on? Why the change in the last few months? Well,
1: I think the Biggest change is that uh, zero COVID is over now and nobody expected that uh, six months ago or even three months ago. So it has happened so abruptly and so quickly. China's economy was shut down in a manual way. the, The slowdown isn't due to structural problems, although those exist as well, but because of zero COVID. And so manually switching it back on means that all of those things that have been dragging on the world economy and the Chinese economy over the last few years are now gone. And so we're going to be looking at, you know, the, the end of travel restrictions means that Chinese tourists can go back out into the world. Southeast Asia will benefit from that in the, over the last, next couple of months. We're seeing an economic boom starting to happen in China where the real estate industry, for example, is coming back online, which will increase demand for commodities from South America, for example. So all of this will have a positive impact on the global economy because China is so integrated into the world economy, and actually, you know, people expect that in a year where Europe and America might be facing a recession, that China will be growing five percent this year, uh, and that's a Bloomberg Economics estimate, not the CCP estimate. Um, and so, so it, it will do, do what it did in two thousand eight, essentially, and and have a have a kind of lifting effect. But there are those structural problems, of course, with China's economy, and even five percent is a slowdown, represents a slowdown in this GDP growth than previous years.
0: Now, of course, in circumstances of stagflation, as we have now effectively, um, a better than expected economic recovery in China is good news for global growth. As a matter of fact, I think the estimates for the Eurozone have been updated to be more optimistic as a result of more optimistic forecasts from China. But it's bad news for global inflation. Will the spread of good and bad be even do you think or will there be winners and losers I'm particularly thinking that you know an economy like the EU for instance who has closer trading links with China will benefit more from the economic recovery there while everyone will basically suffer the the uh, inflationary pressures the same way. So will it create imbalances, especially with the US, which has really scaled back its trading with China?
1: Mm, it hasn't, it hasn't really. I mean, it's really scaled back a lot of the high-tech stuff like semiconductors. But actually, in other areas, the US is still trying to keep that trade with China going. And some American, you know, you look at Janet Yellen at Davos last last week with uh, Liu He, the Chinese top economic official. And, you know, it was all very charming and sweet words.
0: Yes, it was um, very warming, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cold, the Cold War II might not happen after all. I'm not an economic expert on this. Um, but uh, in my understanding, because China is so integrated globally, there are a few countries, I think, in the world for whom China is not one of the major trading partners, that trading coming back online will be ultimately a net benefit, even though I think inflation will rise as a result. But it was ever thus, you know, when, when we have economic growth, we have inflationary pressures. And that, that's what central banks are there to get on top of. I think it's just good that there is some growth in the world at all this
0: year. Yes. <laughs> okay, one final question. It just strikes me that we Tend to talk of the Chinese economy almost entirely in terms of how it affects us. But but there are a, a billion and a half near enough people who live there, and I just don't see the sort of pieces on human suffering that we saw during the Eurozone crisis or when Venezuela went under, you know. W- why do we dehumanize the Chinese population so much?
1: It's a great question, Alex, and one that I've been thinking about really all the way through the pandemic. I mean, first of all, I think there are journalists out there who do amazing work, uh, amazing coverage, and um, often they're in the States, but also some in the UK as well, talking about those human stories. So I don't think the picture is all dire. But nevertheless, I do think that it was very notable for me at the beginning of COVID three years ago now, My family in London were looking at those pictures coming out of Wuhan, the hospitals being overwhelmed, being very concerned about the spread of the virus in January 2020, at a time when Brits were still going out shopping and partying and all of this sort of stuff. And it was only when those Italian hospitals got overrun did we in the UK realise, oh, this is really, really bad. What I was saddened by was that those similar pictures from Wuhan didn't have the same reaction. And I don't know what the reason is. Maybe it's something primitive that, you know, for other Caucasian people, other white people in Europe, you know, you you feel more relatable to them compared to the Chinese or or language issue because there's there's more uh, cross people links or something like that. We don't give nearly enough agency to the Chinese people to tell their own story whether that's positive or negative. And oftentimes, China reporting seems to be a bit of an um, instrumental thing to get on, get one up on China geopolitically. You know, the people are instrumental to the story you want to tell about China's rise, and that's a bad thing. I don't know if that will change, but I, I do think that the pandemic has made it amply clear that there is a lot of distance that uh, Westerners put between the, their mental mindset and, and that of the Chinese.
0: Hmm. Cindy you. thank you so much for your always, always meaningful contribution. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like her work, you can support her work on the funding platform Patreon for the miserly price of a coffee. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. The Chinese economy enjoys strong resilience, tremendous potential and great vitality, said Xi in his New Year's address. As long as we stay confident, we will realise the goals we have set. It seems to me that a truly confident country doesn't have to be reminded to be confident. But it is somehow heartening to hear Xi having to make such a Western politician's statement. This is Alex in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomasiewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.